We have been to Jerusalem, the Axis Monday of the world, where Jesus had to die because all sacrifices had to be done in the temple. We went to Bethany, the home of Mary and Martha. Martha's in the kitchen. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to every word that came out of his mouth. We're at the Mount of Olives after we sang the hymn that closed the feast of the Passover, Psalm 118. And then we wandered down into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives. And last week, uh, we were in the courtyard where Peter was denying that he had ever seen or known Jesus. And on this, the fifth Sunday of Lent, we will find ourselves in a final location. Next week being Palm Sunday, Bethphage, as we go into the city as Jesus rides on a donkey. The last location is a judgment hall of the governor, whose name was Pilate. Pastor Sauer read what happened in the judgment hall. Pilate, knowing that he was an innocent man, it was out of jealousy and anger and hatred that they wanted Jesus dead. His wife coming to him and saying, I had a dream last night, have nothing to do with this innocent man. I want to take you to Mark chapter 14, where Mark adds these words. They took Jesus to the high priest, chief priest, elders, teachers of the law, all came together. Simon Peter followed at a distance right into the courtyard of which Pastor Shower preached last week. He sat with the guards, warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they could find no wrongdoing in him. So they hired people to make false statements about Jesus, but even their statements did not agree. And then Matthew 27, verse 39. Those that passed by the cross, they mocked him and ridiculed him, and reviled him. The message this weekend is the critics. Conspicuous among the faces there in Pilate's judgment hall were the critics. And there at the cross of our Lord, suffering as he was, the critics never missed a beat. They usually don't doesn't matter one's circumstance. Our Lord was used to criticism. You had Satan himself saying to Jesus, what a fool you are. You have all this power, turn the stones into bread. You have his disciples constantly harassing him. Why are we picking grain on the Sabbath day? Why are you letting this Gentile woman follow after us? You've already told her no once. Why don't you just send her away? You have business in the city. Why are you stopping here for these little children and uh, their mothers? And the big one. Why do you keep talking about your death in Jerusalem? Why are you talking about a crucifixion? You're ruining the atmosphere of the ministry we're trying to accomplish. When Mary comes from Bethany and pours perfume on his feet six months after he had visited the home. 
as, he pour, as she pours the perfume on his feet, you have the disciples saying, Are you out of your mind, Jesus? This money should have been kept and given to the poor. His own uh, family, his mother, Mark chapter 3, saying to his brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, Go down to Jerusalem, bring him back. He's out of his mind. The reason we might be interested in the subject of the critic is because we bump into it all the time. Or we ourselves become part of that process. There is no one that is not criticized. Those who suffer most from the critics are those who are a little bit different in their way of thinking and their way of doing things. We pity those who are slower, whether they're slower in the classroom or slower on the athletic fields. We pity those who are slower, but not the critic, because those are the ones they go after. If you're slower, you have a difficult enough time without words being thrown at you. But if those who are slower are criticized, then those who get further ahead than most are criticized. Whatever field we're talking about, the critics come forth if you are higher than most. To be conspicuous in any direction, good or bad, is to meet with abundant criticism. Solomon addressed the issue. He wrote, You will go safest if you walk the middle ground. You'll go safe as you'll avoid criticism if you walk the middle ground. But even those walking the middle ground, they do not escape criticism. There's a second reason we might be interested in the subject, because we also play that role at times. Some do it with great delight. They can hardly wait to sink their teeth into a situation or a circumstance. It seems to be part of their nature. Recklessly and gleefully and with, uh, with vast self-assurance, they criticize a circumstance or they criticize an individual as if all knowledge belonged to them. And if you know them well, you perhaps know their parents and you know where that nature comes from. Instead of that, growing up in that environment, tempering criticism, they just followed in the footsteps. But some, when they criticize, they do it with great kindness and caution because they realize what that word of criticism can do to an individual. They do it very cautiously and with kindness. The Bible literally tells us we have the Christian duty to do that. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. If someone among you is on the wrong path, if someone among you is sinning, you who are spiritual ought to go to them in the spirit of meekness and seek to correct them, taking care of yourself, lest you yourself be tempted. How can you be tempted when you seek to correct someone else? You can be tempted with this thing called pride. 
you're talking to someone else about their issue with alcohol or whatever issue they have, and all of a sudden this thing called pride begins to creep in. And you find yourself thinking, I'm far better than this person that I'm speaking to. It is of those individuals that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Judge not, lest you be judged. You see a tiny speck in your brother's eye, and you got a huge log in your own eye. The same measure you use to judge someone else is going to be used against you. Be our motives good or bad, there are times when we all dare to assume the dangerous and difficult role of critic. Not always wrong. It's Christian duty, according to the Apostle Paul. It's Christian duty, according to the Old Testament prophets. Train up your children in the way they should go. If you have children and you turn an eye to their behavior and say, well, they're just being who they are, train up the children in the way they should go in order to save their lives. Might it be that God sends angels to you in the form of the critic? Did you ever think that? God might send people to you. They bring supper over when you're getting out of the hospital. They mow your grass and they shovel your driveway. Have you ever thought that maybe an individual is sent by God to be a critic for you, to help you grow in your understanding of life? There's a young man some time ago who was concerned about his workload. And as he talked to his boss and was talking about his workload, you know, I'm working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and I don't know. And she said to him, the role of a critic, she said to him, all of us are under that same stress. We're all working 12-hour days, and we're all inundated, and we're all having difficulty sleeping at night and getting out of bed in the morning. And she said to him kindly, she said, but you're the only one I hear about it from every day. And his eyes became open. And there was a significant comment in his life. There have been people who have played the role of critic with me. And my first reaction is one of self-defense. And my second reaction is, oh my goodness, what did they just say? And I've held on to that word whether it was a teacher in high school, a counselor in college, or a friend in my mid-twenties, I've held on to those words all of my life. Could it be that God sends critics into our life to be angels to us? Not to tear us down, which some delight in doing, but rather to seek to correct. You look at the Bible itself. The Bible is written for four reasons, 2 Timothy 3. Paul writes to Timothy, he said, it's written for doctrine, for teaching. Teaching about God the Creator, teaching about Jesus the Redeemer, teaching about the Holy Spirit. It's written for teaching. It's written to teach us about life. Be kind to others. Forgive each other. Feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty. 
It gives us teaching. You are saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God. But then it says it's written for reproof. The Bible is written for reproof. What you're doing is wrong. The Bible is written to say to you, in its word and in your conscience, what you're doing is wrong. It's going to get you on a path where there's mud and quicksand and you're living half-truths and lies. It's going to destroy the peace that's meant to be in your life. It's written for reproof, but it doesn't stop there. It can't. It's written also for correction and instruction in righteousness. What you're doing is wrong, but here is the right path. Correction and instruction in righteousness, they both have to be there. Look at Christ Himself. He opens His mouth and there's words of remarkable praise that come forth. It says to the leper who comes back and after he's been healed, he says, your faith has made you whole. I healed ten of you, only you came back. Your faith is extraordinary. The woman who touches his robe after being sick for twelve years, touches his robe believing she can be healed, says to her, your faith is extraordinary. It's made you whole. He was abundant with his praise. When he asked Simon Peter, who do people say that I am? Simon said, some say you're Elijah, the great prophet. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he praised him to no end. Said to him, upon this faith, I will build my church. Did he ever criticize? Yes. Yes. He's asleep in the boat. Storm comes. The disciples are scared to death. They wake him up. They say, don't you care? We're about to drown. He stops the storm and then he turns and says to them, where in the world is your faith? Seven hours ago, I just fed 10,000 people with five loaves and two. Where is your faith? When he comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration two weeks before he goes to the cross. The disciples are asked to heal a demon-possessed boy. The nine disciples there underneath, they can't heal the boy. Jesus heals the boy. And the nine disciples come and say, why couldn't we do this? He says, your faith isn't strong enough, and I don't have much time left. We were there in the Garden of Gethsemane three weeks ago. He asked them to watch and pray. When he comes back and they're asleep, does he shrug his shoulders and say, ah, I guess I was expecting too much out of them. Does he do that? No. He wakes them up and says, what are you doing? Watch and pray. You love your children. You love your teenagers. With kindness, you correct. And you provide a path. You love a spouse. You love a friend. You do a courageous and a Christian thing. And you say, your anger is getting out of control. Whenever you open your mouth, something negative coming out. The way you're handling Johnny is just a little bit too rough. Not because you enjoy doing it, 
but because you seek to enhance their life. And sometimes we need to point out things to do that. How do you make your criticism Christian? Minimal. 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 You cry wolf too often. You're out of luck. Minimal. 99% of your words, whatever is truthful, just, honest, and pure, if anything is excellent or worthy of praise, think and speak about those things. The 1% of the time when criticism is necessary, you have to be sure of the facts. You can't listen to hearsay or gossip. You have to be sure of the facts. And even if you're sure of the facts, you have to take into consideration what that person is going through. Why have they become the way they are? And then you find out they were diagnosed with cancer three months ago. Why are they are the way they are? And you find out they're going through a divorce. Or financially, they've lost their situation. To be... Critical in a Christian nature, you need to know what the facts are and you have to take into consideration. And as I've said to so many people, you have to pray before you speak. If I pray before every call I ever make going into a house or a hospital or a nursing home, if I pray, God, give me the right words, then how much more important is it to pray when you have to intervene in a person's life. And secondly, and above all else, you have to be constructive. My goodness gracious, you have to be constructive. You know in your own life that a person's critical word can destroy you. You remember something that was said when you were six or seven years old. And it's 60 years later and you still remember it and it still influences the way you think and do stuff. Oh my goodness. Be constructive. Don't just tear a person down and leave them flat. Walk with them. Alcoholics Anonymous, we're going to call that number and we're going to go there. I know an individual therapist who deals with anger issues. You have to provide a way. The Bible isn't just written for reproof, let's destroy everybody. It's written for correction and instruction in righteousness. It tells us that God tramples our sin under His feet, casts them into the depths of the sea. He says to Simon Peter three times, do you love me? That's how many times you denied me. Do you love me? Simon Peter knows the exact direction he's heading. And every time he says it, and Peter says, you know I love you, he says, okay man, go feed my sheep. Go feed my sheep. If a month from now you're out in your backyard and you're pulling all the weeds out of your garden, that's good. But if you don't plant any flowers or don't plant any seed, you're just going to have bare soil all summer. You just don't pull weeds without planting something. Finally, what do we do when we're criticized? 
What do we do when we're criticized? What does Paul Strand do when he's criticized? Do we quit? Do we quit? We pray to God. We say, God, what direction do you want me to go? And God sent you in this direction. And then some human being says to you, you're wrong. Well, God said, head this direction. And someone else says, you're wrong. Do we just quit? You made your plans, you set your goals, you began work in good faith, and then you were criticized and you quit. No. If you quit, you're like someone who's the seed that was sown in stony soil and it grew for a little bit and the sun came out and scorched it. You don't quit. Talking to a guy a couple of weeks ago and he had read Pat Bredlow's book, the Green Mile, Pat Bredlaw, six years ago, walking 2,200 miles on the Appalachian Trail. And there were many times that Pat wanted to quit. And he wrote in that book, do not quit on your worst day. And as I'm talking to this young man who's having a really bad day at work, he quoted Pat Bredlaw, who was here at 8 o'clock, and I embarrassed him thoroughly. You're welcome. Thank you. Don't quit on your worst day. Secondly, when you're criticized, should you try and please everybody? No, that doesn't work. The only person you and I are supposed to please is God Himself. Thirdly, don't listen to anybody. Take every suggestion as an affront and every criticism as an insult. Become very stubborn as Germans can be. No, Some criticism we need to ignore. Why did Jesus answer a question from Pontius Pilate, are you the Christ? And he said, yes, I am. And why did he not answer the same question when the chief priests asked him, are you the Christ? He remained silent. Why did he answer the governor and not the others? Because he knew how much they hated him. And he wasn't going to waste his breath. Some criticism we ought to ignore, some criticism, as I have done at least three times in my life, we need to listen to very carefully. Because sometimes our critics speak the truth about us. And God has sent them as angels. Fear, worry, hatred, anger, Shame, guilt. Pastor Sauer last week speaking about shame and guilt. An angel sent to those who have difficulty with it. 7,000 promises in the Bible sent to those who have difficulty with certain issues in life. And then, finally, What did Jesus end up doing with the critics? His enemies. What did he end up doing with them? First words out of his mouth on the cross were not for his mother. They were not for us. They were not for his heavenly father. First words out of his mouth were for his critics. Father, forgive them, 
They've made my life hellish. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Pilate's judgment hall, and we shall leave there and end up in Bethphage, riding into Jerusalem with our Lord and Savior. In his name, amen. Heavenly Father, I prayed at the beginning of this service that you would be with everyone across this world who would preach and teach on this day. You had already brought into their mind and heart that which was to be spoken of. You had already chosen the hymns and the choirs, the Holy Sacrament. You had already chosen it because there was maybe one person on this earth who was in need of that message. At the end of this sermon, as at the beginning, may the words spoken here in hymn, scripture, and message be acceptable in your sight. And may the hearts of those meditating online or in the sanctuary be acceptable in your sight. In our Savior's name, amen.